As you take your seats, I invite you to turn your copies of God's holy and inspired word to John 1. We are continuing to look at the significance of our name for us, Grace Covenant. Last week, we looked at the implementation or the inauguration of the covenant of grace from Genesis 3. This morning, we look at where the beginning of the fulfillment of that covenant of grace breaks into history as we look at John's description of Jesus Christ. Now, the focus here is going to be on verses 14 through 18, but I'm going to begin reading at John 1.1 so that you can see uh, the, the first portion of what we refer to as the prologue of John's gospel. So the first 18 verses uh, are uh, the first word. It is this beginning summary of what John is going to do with the entire gospel. And that is to unfold uh, to God's people and to the world who Jesus Christ is. And so far within our service, all the themes that are found within John 1, we have already been focusing on throughout the liturgy as we have thought and as we have prayed and as we have sung and reflected upon God's presence. And as, that, as God's presence uh, is often described in the form of light, that God's presence is described uh, in uh, the form of uh, his speaking or his word. His presence um, that took um, a, visible, um, a visible form uh, when the glory cloud took up residence within the tabernacle. In fact, remember that word tabernacle uh, because in John 1, as we read, there's going to be a place where I'm going to use the word tabernacled instead of the English word that your translations have, and I'm doing that on purpose. So John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from Christ, his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us this morning as we experience you in the preaching of the word to open our hearts and our minds and our wills to receive you and to be reshaped and reformed by you so that we might truly be able to see you and to savor you in a greater way and to be filled with an even greater joy that we might indeed show forth our triune God in our lives, in our attitudes, in our marriages, in the way that we go about our vocations, that in everything, the grace upon grace from the fullness that we have received in Christ would flow in us, through us, and out of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is in a name? This was the question that I had us thinking about last week. A question that came from Shakespeare, a question that uh, in its original context in Shakespeare, you have Juliet who has fallen uh, for, uh, is infatuated uh, with this young man and has found out that he is part of the family that her family are warring against. They are th- these two families uh, who embody these different values, these different actions, and, and because of that, they are communities that do not intermix with one another. And so it is a scandal for, for these two star-crossed lovers to now be interested and infatuated with one another. And in that original question, as she asks, you know, what is in a name, she, she expressed interest and desire, and maybe, and maybe he would change his name, and if not, well, then maybe she will change her name. Why? Is it because there's power in that name? No. It's not as if she just goes to her father and says, by the way, I'm, I'm going to change my name uh, so that I can be with this individual that you hate. As if the father is going to say, oh, well, as long as you, you know, change your name, it's fine. The name is the embodiment of these core values and identity that leads to actions and community. It does, doesn't matter if she changes her name. It doesn't change who she is. She is still the daughter of her father who is at war with this other family. And it doesn't matter if he changes his name because Romeo will still be the son of 
his father who is at war with her family. The name is important because of what it embodies, because of what it reveals. And what we looked at last week, that with us being named Grace Covenant, that we see something significant about ourselves and who we are and who we are attempting to be within this community as that identity expresses, it leads to values, and as those values are formed and shaped by something that express themselves in action, and not just as individuals, but as a corporate community, as a covenant community. And what we saw in that initiation of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3 is that God does not leave his people in the estate of sin and misery, even though they are in that estate through their choice. That God is gracious. And that grace comes to us in the form of a pledge. It comes in the form of a promise. It comes in the form of a covenant. And that covenant form of, the, of grace provides us the confidence of knowing who we are and that it cannot change because it is totally dependent upon God and his promises and his faithfulness to do what he has said. That our existence as a church is an existence that is to embody a confidence to follow God, believing him, regardless of what is happening around us, because we know that we have his grace. In John 1 now, what John, the way John describes Jesus at the beginning of this gospel, he describes Jesus very specifically in light of that opening narrative of the creation story back at the beginning of Scripture, back at the beginning of covenant history. If you look at the way, as we just read about Jesus Christ, he is described as the light. He is described as the light that was present at creation. He is described as the word that was present at creation. He is described as the agent of creation. He is described as the light that came into creation in order to shine into the darkness to form and to fill creation into what God would have it to be, leading to a day of light on that seventh day, that Sabbath day. That Jesus is described as the one who has come. Just as there was the light of God and the word of God in creation, Jesus was that light. Jesus was that word. But he has now come in the fullness of time by being born of a woman. He is that light. He is that word. 
He was revealing God's presence back in creation. He is revealing God's presence in his incarnation. And what happened that we looked at last week in creation as God revealed himself through the light and through the word and used that to, to, to shine into the darkness? His own received him not. Adam and Eve who were the height of God's creation as those created in his image, created to rule along with him, as those who were in a loving covenant relationship with him, they rejected him and they sided with the serpent. He came to his own, but his own received him not. And as we've read within John 1, as Jesus came into this world being born of Mary and and embodying the light of God's presence, the word of his truth, his own received him not. And it is at that point in Genesis 3, it is that point in John 1, where God turns our attention to his grace. And in Genesis 3, God gives his grace. Adam and Eve don't die immediately like they deserved. Instead, they are allowed to live. God gives them a promise that he's going to do something that they did not do for themselves in order to rectify their rebellion and draw them back to himself. And then we see a picture of that in God providing them coverings. They tried to cover themselves with some leaves, didn't work out too well. God gives them skin, and he gives them a covering through the shedding of blood of something in their place. That grace that he turns their attention to at the beginning of covenant history, that covenant of grace, now we see is coming to fulfillment within history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The promise that was made is now a promise that has been born. Now that promise was at work. It was at work throughout the Old Testament. And we see these different occasions of God coming to his people, his presence coming near. And that presence often described in terms of light, in terms of glory, in terms of speaking, and that all of this has to be mediated because the unmediated light, glory, and speaking of the Lord would kill his people. And so we see even as we we were looking earlier in the liturgy, as God came near to his people in in the glory cloud that had encompassed Mount Sinai, where he was speaking from the cloud through Moses to his people. And he spoke and he declared who he was to them. A God who was a God we read uh, in, the, in the liturgy of loving kindness and truth. This is a Hebrew expression that is found throughout the Old Testament when it speaks of Yahweh's chesed wa'imeth, 
his loving kindness or his loyal love or his covenant love and his truthfulness, his reliability, his truth, his faithfulness. That God describes himself with these two words throughout the Old Testament. And as we come to our text here in John 1, what is it that is said of Jesus? That he is grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of Yahweh's chesed wa'emeth. It is not just something that exists in the sky. It is something that has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In systematic theology, what we would say is being emphasized at the beginning here of John 1 is that Jesus is being described as being fully divine. He is God in the flesh. The God who revealed himself in the glory cloud over Sinai. The God who revealed himself as the speaking forth from that glory cloud on Sinai has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory cloud that left Sinai and took up residence in the tabernacle where the glory of God was hidden underneath skins of animals and and the screens and the different instruments of the tabernacle. God has now come and his glory has taken up residence in human skin in Jesus Christ. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is described as being God who has broken into history. And he has broken into history in the form of a person. God's promises, God's covenant has hands and feet, has a voice, and he speaks because he embodies all that God is. The importance of that here in John's prologue is not simply to make a case for Jesus' divinity. That is here, and and it's a very nice presentation that is helpful to use when you're talking to someone who questions that. But within John's gospel, the reason that he is setting forth Jesus as the eternal God is because of what he says in our passage in verses 14 through 18, that everything that you see that is true about Jesus, it is true as it is an expression of God. What does that mean here in our text? Well, as the covenant of grace breaks into history in the form of a person, the grace and truth that is being set before us here is God's grace and truth. And what God is telling us is that the fullness, notice the text, the fullness of his grace and truth is found in Christ. Let me put it to you another way. There is absolutely nothing that is lacking in Christ. There, let me put it another, another way. There's not as if God has given a lot of grace in Jesus. God has given 
all his grace in Jesus. There is nothing in reserve. There is nothing he's left over. There is nothing that he's got up in his back pocket for just-in-case situations. There is nothing that is lacking. It is the fullness of God's grace in this man, Jesus Christ. And the reason that that is important is because we are told that from his fullness, you and I have received grace upon grace. Now that's a really interesting phrase in the, in the Greek text. The preposition that has been translated in our English as uh, grace upon grace, it's actually a preposition that is used to designate opposition. In the Greek, it's anti. And guess what anti means in the Greek? It means exactly what it means in English. It means against. It means in the place of. It, it means instead of. Now think about that for a second. When we use a preposition of opposition, we tend to think you know, in terms of, well, it's not this, it's this other thing. It's not this, you get this instead. And what is he doing here in the way he is expressing how full God's grace is in Jesus Christ? Well, instead of grace, what you get is grace. Oh, and when, the, and when, when you have grace over here, if, if, there's, if there's not that, oh, well, then there's grace. You see what's going on here? He is using opposition as a way of expressing totality, fullness. There is grace in the place of grace. There is grace instead of grace. There is 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 unending grace in Jesus Christ. Let that hit you. Because I know that in your hearts, you don't really trust that. I know from counseling of how many times people have come to me and said, I have just sinned to that point. Guess what? There is no point where you get beyond grace because in the place of grace, you get grace. And so many of us live in our daily lives hiding behind the facade that we create of who we want people to see, our, uh, see us as or how, how we want to present ourselves as because we get scared of the real us because we think that if we live as the real us, the real God is going to show up and he's going to take care of the real me. We think that there is a, a point in which God's grace runs out. And we think at that point, when that God shows up, that he's going to finally do what he should have done from the beginning, and that is not love me. Paul, do you see how impossible that is? Because if God replaces his grace with something, this text tells us what he replaces it with. He replaces his grace with grace. 
the confidence that we have in the covenant of grace because it comes to us in the form of a pledge, because it comes to us in the form of a promise, because it comes in the form of God putting his name on the line. It is a covenant of grace that we have confidence in and can trust because we know the grace that is contained within it does not end. It does not run out. In Christ, the fullness of God's grace is embodied. In Christ, that fullness now belongs to you. That is overwhelming. And this is one of those sermons where you're just like, I just wish I could express this. The fullness of God's grace is in you in Christ. This is why it is so vital for us to understand what it means to become a son or daughter of God. What it means to have the rights, the privileges of being the children of God that he talks about in verse 12. It's because what it means is that the life of Christ has taken up residence within us. And the way that what Christ has done becomes effectual for us is because Christ dwells in us. And Christ, who was the fullness of God's presence, the fullness of his light, the fullness of his glory, who came and tabernacled with his people, is a Christ who takes up residence within you when you simply believe. And his residence within you does not wax or wane dependent upon how consciously you are living in devotion to him. You see, what waxes and wanes in you is your conscious recognition of what is always going on. What becomes more real to you at times is something that is just as real when you're not aware of it. And that is why when you come to me for counseling, by the way, what I'm going to do is work really hard not to address this very specific little thing that, you, that has brought you to me. I'm going to put you back into the fullness of the scope of who you are in Christ so that you on your own can learn to see that little thing as it really is because you now really see who you really are. In Christ, the fullness of his grace has taken up residence within you. And if we are going to call ourselves grace covenant, what that means is the fullness of that unending grace that is at work within you is to be revealed through you. Notice what the text says. Not only... Is Jesus the fullness of God? And not only in Jesus has the fullness of grace come to us, but what we see is that in, in, in embracing Jesus Christ, what we are doing is we are taking up the privileged status of his children in participating in revealing Jesus Christ to others. 
What he is um, working on here is not simply that Jesus came. Notice twice John the Baptist is mentioned as the one bearing witness and how the role of the church finds its expression in taking up that charge as well as we are those in whom Christ dwells in order for us to be the ones through whom Christ reveals God the Father to this watching world. And so that we have to understand this identity as a grace covenant church in terms of the fullness of grace at work within us so that we will know the confidence that we have in opening ourselves up and entrusting ourselves to become vulnerable with one another and vulnerable within this world as being expressions of the fullness of Christ's grace to one another. It is the fullness of grace that not only defines your identity and gives you purpose as an individual believer, it is what defines us and gives us purpose as a corporate community. And so fellowship in the church is an expression of your fullness of grace that is at work within you and your fullness of grace that is at work within you and you learning to relate to one another in light of the fullness of God's grace that is in work in y'all. Isn't it fun to be Southern? We get to say y'all instead of having to say you again. Ewans. The fullness of God's grace is at work within you and within you and within you and within you and within you. And And when y'all interact with one another, it is the fullness of that grace that is to define and shape who you are and how you relate. Think about that the next time someone says something that aggravates you. Guess what? The fullness of Christ's grace at work within you means that you don't get to just decide to be aggravated. Because to decide to be aggravated is to set a limit upon the grace of Christ that is at work within you. And that is a contradiction to who you are in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says, you forgive your brother 70 times 7. Not that you are keeping a list. Well, that was 234. He's he's about halfway through. It's a way of expressing unending forgiveness. Because there is unending forgiveness in Christ. That Christ is in you. And that is who you are and who you are called to reveal in this life it means that there is grace upon grace that is to define our interaction with those outside this wall these walls it defines our fellowship with god it defines our fellowship with one another it defines the way we interact with those who are outside these walls and look things have changed this world that we are living in is different. The America that our older members have gotten to experience is not the America that our younger generation is going to experience. There are certain things that can no longer be taken for granted. And we have to make choices now in what we choose 
to value and to highlight in our interactions with those outside these walls. And my encouragement is that you choose to make yourself vulnerable and reveal Christ. There are so many things that we can choose to reveal. Reveal Christ. You may have an excellent ethical point on something. But if that person does not have the life of Christ dwelling within them, that is not their primary need. Now, that doesn't mean you don't discuss ethics. What it means is discuss ethics in such a way that you highlight the hope of Jesus Christ. You may have a great political point. Great. How can you reveal that in such a way that that political point takes someone to Jesus and doesn't just leave them with politics? So there's nothing wrong with politics. There's nothing wrong with talking about politics. But this privilege that we have in being called the children of God is a privilege of having God dwell within us and a privilege in which we express this God to those outside these walls. And so I'm begging you and I'm begging me to take these days and cultivate within yourself this awareness of the fullness of God's grace in Christ as being something you have already received. You do not lack any of God's grace for yourself. You do not lack any of God's grace for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You do not lack any of God's grace for dealing with those outside these walls. Beloved, the fullness of God's grace is in Christ. And from his fullness, we receive grace in the place of grace, in the place of grace, in the place of grace. I hope you get the point. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is just amazing that you did not leave us in your sin that you bound yourself to do something for us even when we had denied you and rejected you. And yet you still call us to yourself even at the cost of your son coming to this world and though being perfect, being sinless, taking on our sin entering into the estate of sin and misery on our behalf and paying the penalty, the penalty that we should have to pay ourselves. And Father, we praise you that the grace that you have covenanted is a grace that you fully provide simply by being united to your Son. And so help us to cultivate our union with Christ. That we would cultivate an active awareness of the fullness of your grace that is at work within us. Because it is our tendency to forget that. It is our tendency 
to focus on other things and to define ourselves in all manners of ways other than being the inheritors of the fullness of Christ. So help us to cultivate this, Lord, and help us as a church to embody your grace upon grace. Help us not to be a church that is characterized by legalism. Help us not to be a church that is characterized by people with short fuses or who are easily offended. Help us not to be characterized as those who have limits to our love. Help us not to be characterized as a church that is full of factions and taking up sides. Fill your, our session, Lord, with this grace upon grace that we would lead your church in the way that we relate to one another and the way that we relate uh, to your sheep and to the way that we relate to this world as those in whom the fullness of Christ's grace dwells. Help our deacons to do the same. Help our leaders to do the same. Help our teachers to do the same, Lord. Help us all to be this kind of church. Because, Lord, we live in a community that needs your grace. We live in a culture that is so easily offended right now. We live in a culture that is so easily separated right now along political lines or in any number of different ways, Lord. Help us to be a presentation of your grace so that people might find that within this world and see Jesus and learn to savor him for who he is and to give their lives to him in worship forevermore. Father, help us as we serve you that we present the true you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand.